If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Roham Gargoslu, co-founder and CEO of Dapper Labs, the NFT company that created CryptoKitties, Flow, and NBA Topshop. Roham started Dapper Labs in 2018 as a spin-out of Axiom Zen, the award-winning venture studio. Dapper Labs is on a mission to spread the benefits of decentralization through power of play, fairness, and true ownership. The company has created some of the most broadly used applications in the history of crypto. On NBA Top Shot alone, they've scaled to over 1 million users who have traded nearly $800 million. Dapper Labs was named one of the 10 most innovative gaming companies by Fast Company and was most recently valued at $7.6 billion. Roham started his first company at the age of 14 and has since funded and built over a dozen businesses. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics and dual bachelor's and master's degrees in biological sciences from Stanford University. And with that, I'm so excited to welcome Roham. Um, first of all, Roham, I'm so excited for you to be here today. I followed you, I don't know, forever now. Let's go ahead and just start with the basics for everybody out there listening that maybe don't fully understand what Dapper Labs is really. Describe uh, Dapper Labs to everybody in your own words. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Dapper Labs, so most people know Dapper Labs through the products that we've built, uh, whether it's NBA Top Shot, uh, NFL All Day, UFC Strike, or um, or of course Crypto Kitties, which was which was our first product. Um, but our mission at Dapper Labs is is to make the world a more open place, a more empowering place for creators and their communities. And we see Web three and this conversation of the metaverse, and you know the fact that we're all spending more and more of our time digitally um, as as a way to do that. So our company's mission is basically to help make the world a more open place to shape the impact of these new technologies that are changing the lives of everybody that, that uses them and, and understands them and really creating massive opportunity for, for people. So we created the company back in uh, February 2018. Um, we've raised over $600 million um, from some of the world's best investors um, and, uh, and you know, athletes like Michael Jordan, artists like Kanye West, Kevin Durant, all, all of these folks. And um, we feel like we're just getting started. We built a fair number of products for people to use, but um, things are early and, and we have a lot more in the pipeline. One of the things, Roham, I love most about you and your background is, and we'll get to it later, but your comfort with being really early, really on the edge of something. Can we go back and can you tell us about those early days? And if we talk through sort of the logistics, Dapper Labs spun out of Axiom Zen, your award-winning venture studio. It was early called Crypto Kitties. Can you just go back and give us as though we are you, what was that ride like early? And when did you specifically know you were onto something? What was the moment? What was the thing that happened where you said, huh, something's re really big is here? I guess it was on a couple of different levels. You know, we, we as Axiom Zen first started looking into crypto and, and sort of what, what the concept of uh, Web3 was 
back in 2014 with, with Bitcoin. We tried building uh, on top of Bitcoin. We spent a lot of time, uh, another one of our teams has spent a lot of time in AR, VR, and, and sort of what is now known as kind of metaverse. And uh, so it was when we saw um, a lot of folks or, or uh, the early developments on um, the Ethereum blockchain back in 2017, it clicked for us that, wait a second, if life's going to be digital, um, then things like digital property rights um, are even more important than something like a digital currency. Um, and yet nobody had really thought about using uh, blockchains to represent things other than currency. So so it was it was that early on from a sort of you know infrastructure standpoint that we we came up with there needs to be a standard for these things. We call them non-fungible tokens, NFTs. And we started working on, hey, what what could that standard look like? How could uh, different apps sort of create different kinds of NFTs and what uh, whether in the real world or, or digital world. Um, and so over, you know, I guess it was summer 2017, we knew that this was a big concept for people and a step change for the industry. But we also knew that, you know, usually you need to kind of uh, bring attention to ideas and, and, you know, let people sort of play with them. Um, and so we started thinking through, well, what could a NFT game uh, look like? And uh, the, the, that's when kind of CryptoKitties was born. CryptoKitties was a, you know, kind of half-baked, uh, concept over the summer. And, and we really tried to, um, we went through a lot of different iterations. It was the first time someone had tried to build a game into a, a smart contract, but we we did a very early test in October of 2017. We put kind of pictures on cats on Pokemon cards to kind of help people understand, hey, this is like Pokemon, it's collectibles. You have to go, but instead of catching them in the wild, you actually breed your cats together to find different kinds of cats. And, and there's some rare ones, there's some common ones. And, uh, and it just went completely viral at the conference, which which was the first Ethereum conference was called uh, ETH Waterloo in, in Waterloo, Canada. And that's when we knew, hey, we, we figured out kind of the, 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 the narrative and the emotional sort of connection that's going to help this technology make sense to a lot more people. Um, and then we launched the product about a little over a month later, November 2017. So what happened next? It sounds like you found the consumer portal to help people really understand what this future could look like and play with it and really touch it with their own hands. What did you learn from crypto kitties that helped you a year plus later with everything that you did and as how you approached Top Shot? I should clarify, NBA Top Shot and NFL and you have seen all, all of our products uh, since as well as now products from many other developers, they all run on the new Flow blockchain. So we, after CryptoKitties, pretty much 24, 48 hours after we launched the product, it sort of maxed out the capacity of um, of the network. And what that means is everything became a lot more expensive. And so because you, uh, blockchains are these decentralized systems, you have to kind of pay per transaction. You're paying a group of computers to sort of do the work. Um, and the cost of breeding a cat, which is you know a very simple computation, went from a few cents to several dollars. And then at this point, I think it's over, over 100 bucks. So so things became very expensive very quickly. And so we realized to go mainstream, and the whole thing was breaking out of several thousand users. To try to serve millions of users, um, you need to kind of rethink the infrastructure from the ground up. Um, you need to rethink a lot of how the, even the experience of developers building these products looks like. So that's where the Flow blockchain came from. Um, and uh, we launched it in, uh, uh, we open sourced it April of 2020. Um, and, and at this point, it's it's uh, fully decentralized, controlled by the community. And it helps make it a lot easier for us as developers to build easy to use products that keep our customers safe. That's sort of how we thought about the mission of 
you know, what, what flow as a platform needs to be. So that was one of the biggest um, learnings of kind of what was necessary for this thing to succeed. But it was very clear. Look, like when you give people ownership or, over something, um, it matters a lot more to them. When you give people the ability to um, make money from their time, um, they actually put in more time and more engagement and more effort. And so, I mean, it sounds obvious when you sort of put it that way, but we were seeing engagement data that was just off the charts compared to like an average game. We're seeing people, normal people coming in and grinding through the difficulty of understanding how to use MetaMask and, and all these tools and then spending uh, a lot of time and attention and and really building friendships in the community, connecting with folks in a different way. So um, it was it was incredible to see. And, you know, the that kind of consumer behavior, the evolution of social media is something like uh, what you're seeing with NFTs and, you know, people having skin in the game, people having uh, putting kind of their money where their mouth is in, in a lot of ways and being part of communities that um, give back to them um, and reward their time. I mean, that was the most exciting sort of learnings. And and then every brand that was paying attention was knocking down our door, wanting to recreate it because they they sort of saw the power, but but we had to sort of hold them off because we felt the technology uh, wasn't ready. I want to double click on one thing there, and then we're going to come back to once the technology was ready, how you moved into your next chapter. You said something really profound there, which is the consumer behavior, this next phase of social where somebody can put their time in to make money, which is pretty profound um, as we enter the ownership economy. Just describe what you think is driving that and what you think that could do in 10 years. Well, I think it's it's the number of things. I mean, number one, the new generation has kind of grown up with social media. You know, when I went to college, my first year at Stanford was the first year that uh, Facebook had rolled out to, and it was just Harvard and Stanford at the time. So I, I kind of, I grew up until the age of 18 without social media. Um, and then after that, you know, it's been kind of my my life. So you have a level of connectivity with others that that is really high, but you're starting to look for more. It's not enough. Just you, social media talk is cheap, right? Uh, but but actions speak louder than words. And in a lot of ways, uh, a, a blockchain, which is a public ledger of people's actions and the things they own, which also represents the decisions they've made, the kind of putting money where your mouth is, get in the game, all of these concepts, it speaks much louder to the new generation and says, well, um, hey, you're like me because you've chosen to spend um, your your money like me. Um, and then the flip side is, if we're spending more and more time digitally, um, then we kind of expect it to to serve us in different ways. And and I think COVID was a big accelerator here. People realize, I mean, all of us are working digitally, right? We're all working from home. Very few people are going in and using their hands to to do things in one particular physical place. Um, obviously, many many folks are, but that's that's an increasing minority. And so. When you realize, hey, look, like we can, we're working digitally, then why not exchange value in sort of purely digital worlds? And you know, we can talk about kind of the concept of DAOs and other things later. But but it's sort of an evolution of well, maybe the concept of a corporation isn't the only way, and the salary, and a, you know, and payroll systems. So that's not the only way people get get paid. Um, if I create entertainment value in a digital world, another person who is benefiting from that entertainment might pay me in that digital world. And, you know, in CryptoKitties, it manifested as like people spent a lot of time breeding certain cats that were considered very collectible and valuable by others who purchased them um, off of them. It was kind of grinding for for work. And NBA Top Shot, it's a little bit like if you're a really good NBA fan and you make the right decisions and bet on the right players and think about, hey, how's the season going to evolve? Which teams are going to make it the distance? You're going to end up economically ahead of, of someone who is maybe not as sharp of a fan. It's sort of rewarding time and attention 
with financial value. And, um, and I just think that's that's sort of how everything's going. And when you look at kind of things like, you know, Robin Hood and, you know, what happens with GameStop and, and you know, what's happening today with McDonald's and, uh, and, and all this sort of thing, it's kind of people wanting to be a part of something um, that's bigger than them. That's not just a Facebook group or, 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 or something like that. It's, it's actually other people who are putting skin in the game and, and, and sort of demonstrating um, a deeper level of community. Now the tools exist for that. We're seeing that happen more and more. So CryptoKitties got out. Wow. Quickly viral. You had to build flow because you said, we, we need to be able to scale this. You launched with Top Shot, NBA Top Shot, and you went viral wildly fast, million plus users quickly. What went through your head at this point? Was it like, wow, we're on the new frontier of a fundamentally different way of working? Walk us through a little bit of that chapter of the business um, from your own from your own point of view. Well, look, I mean, we are skipping a phase in there that I don't uh, like thinking about too much because it took it took a lot of time and effort, but we spent year and a half, two years grinding through before we even committed to building on flow, figuring out, hey, what's the right technology for this thing? So we built the first uh, smart contract wallet on Ethereum. It was the first wallet to say, hey, we should pay for gas and transaction fees on our users' behalf so they don't have to think about it. It's the first wallet to, to do password recover, key recovery in case you lost your device. Um, that's still, you know, if you lose your, your seed phrase or whatever it is on MetaMask, your stuff is gone forever. Um, we built a wallet that fixed that problem. And in general, tried to kind of, you know, put in, it was the first wallet to have credit card integration natively in the UI so you could buy um, ETH if you, if you didn't have it. So we spent a year and a half, two years trying to make it work on the old system before deciding to build uh, a new system. And, and I think that, that kind of informed the design of, of the new system in a big way. And then even Top Shot, you know, we launched it October 2020. It did uh, grow to a few thousand users that were super active really quickly. But it took a while for it to kind of percolate through the um, public consciousness. And it was only so that that's the season that year kicked off December 22nd. And, you know, obviously then the interest picks up, people start talking about it. Um, but it was around January, February that kind of the we went from 4,000 or so signups to over 300,000 signups uh, in 30 days. And, and you know, th- this is a economic process. People were, you know, putting in their financial information. We had to have our, we had to scale our compliance teams and, and all of these these things. So that was the the January to March period was the uh, intense period. And honestly, we were just executing. We we were we had customers they needed help, and and we just needed to deliver it. And so most of my time was you know either in Discord or or um, on interviews uh, hiring people. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. If you have to fast forward 10 years, just give us one or two or three predictions that you have, things that seem really obvious to you that maybe everybody who's listening, who's watching and trying to understand where this world's going, give us your predictions. 10 years is is a long time, but I think a lot of these things will happen faster than 10 years. I think that um, most people will be making their sort of living income outside of the corporate kind of framework. 
and being able to sort of work for themselves, but also be part of communities bigger than themselves. And I think almost everything of tradable value, so value that might matter to other people, um, will be NFTified, whether it's sort of physical or digital, simply because the level of transparency it adds and programmability and sort of access to capital markets um, is going to be too much of a draw. So I'm just excited for a world that's that's transparent to everybody, where anyone can build apps and services on top of without being blocked by the larger uh, companies that that are currently gatekeepers. And then I think that you know it, even the average individual that isn't a technologist or an artist or a creator. Um, we'll have a more transparent view of, okay, what's what are my opportunities in life? How do I uh, monetize my skills, but also my uh, desires, right? Like it's not just about what can be extractive, but it's also what can I add to the world? Um, and that's not necessarily kind of how most people think, but I think, you know, the combination of metaverse uh, education being available just completely openly, you know, satellites in the sky, um, serving internet to everywhere in the world without, um, you know, even the the governments being able to block it, it just will, it's going to create digital nation states that anybody can join and leave and, and add value to and, and benefit from. And, you know, that that's, I think, going to make the world a much more open place. As somebody who spent my life's work staring at how do we empower the wallet for every person on this planet and how do we give people opportunities, tell me a little bit more about what you see, because what I hear when you say that is, all of our parents worked in corporate America and often, you know, changed jobs very infrequently and got two weeks of paid vacation. And it was very, very structured. You and I have, uh, and by the way, it sounds like you and I are basically the same age because uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is my classmate. So I lived through literally that that wave of, of, of social coming online. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always joke, you know, the, the, this younger generation behind us, they, they truly are fluent in, in social. But the fact that, People can think about their careers, their earning power, really in an autonomous way that is shifting before our eyes in a fundamental way. Just give us a sense of some of those examples that you're seeing or some of the things that you think are most appealing about that. And that's a good question. So I think it's also the idea that, you know, today most people are, people either start off with capital or they are kind of reliant on, uh, you know, wage income to sort of grow. And a lot of what Web3 allows is, access to kind of, um, you know, I mean, let me give you an example. Um, most value is created by startups when it comes to kind of company creation, et cetera. But the only people that can invest in startups are people who already have uh, a lot of money and either, you know, really high income or or really high net worth, et cetera. I mean, you're a venture capitalist, you know, you know how it works, but it doesn't necessarily create opportunity for people who have nothing to be able to join something early, earn a piece of it, but also potentially put skin in the game into something they, they really believe in and, and help make it successful. I think that's sort of in a simplistic way, a lot of what is, is happening in crypto, there's sort of counter examples of it or, or examples where it doesn't work as well. But uh, when you think about uh, a digital world being a space that you know is valuable because people want to spend time in it and people coming together to create places and, and communities of value and then benefiting from it, um, I think that's incredibly that's incredibly powerful. So, you know, if you were someone that got into the board ape community uh, early, helped make it um, what it is today. And you know, there's only, I mean, even today, there's only five six thousand people in that community. But back then, there was maybe one or two thousand. Each individual can actually have a pretty significant impact on how that community is perceived and how it grows. Um, and today, it's a multi billion dollar um, brand owned by each person who has their own ape, whether it's 
you know, Paris Hilton or someone who got in early and and managed to be sort of hold hold on for the ride and and also create value the whole way. So um, that's maybe an, an example of what what we're talking about. But thinking about even uh, NBA Top Shot or uh, what we're doing with IP that is owned by you know some of the largest organizations in the world and and largest communities in the world, we're bringing these communities into the world of Web three where anybody can tap into them. So there's at this point, dozens of teams and products building on top of Top Shot and saying, well, if you're an NBA fan, you're going to be part of NBA Top Shot, which means I can build a product for you that uh, you can just log into with your Top Shot account. And I instantly know what teams you're a fan of, what players you're a fan of, sort of what your past decisions have been, how long you've been part of the system. And I can give you a better experience because of that, in a sense, without Dapper Labs as an organization, even being able to sort of get in the middle of it. So it kind of creates opportunities that at every layer. And you know, ultimately, if we think about sort of the metaverse, um, then you can imagine people providing actual services um, in a digital world, creating things that others find valuable and purchase off of them. Today, you're seeing it with artists and, and digital art. And actually, even in, in the metaverses that that uh, exist that are, that are decentralized, there's a lot of activity happening where you pay digital architects and digital designers to kind of create that space for you and then goes on to digital events and 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 sort of creating the environment where people people want to be so i mean i i get i get super excited about this stuff but the reality is you know there's uh there's just so much work to do to kind of operationalize it and make it real so you have this clear vision of where the future is headed what are the things if anything could be the things that like really slow this train down what are those I like to be an optimist most of the time, but but as an entrepreneur, you also I like to, that about you. <laughs> uh, but I, I always say, you know, but but you have to be a little uh, paranoid or a lot paranoid, and and then kind of work to de-risk de-risk these things. Look, I think there's a lot of people that are feeling left out in the sense of, hey, they hear about all this money being made, but they don't know how to, you know, what am I supposed to do? And so, um, you know, the user experience of getting involved in these networks is difficult. Um, a lot of times what happens at an NFT drop on other platforms is basically, you know, whoever shows up with a fancy, you know, software and uh, and bots and a lot of money to kind of race against others, they get the best stuff or, or they get all the stuff um, and everybody else has to kind of, you know, fight, fight for scraps. And so having a bad user experience for new entrants is something that that could slow adoption down of, of anything. And that's why we place a lot of effort into saying, well, if you buy anything in a Dapper Labs product or even in a product that uses our Dapper wallet and built on top of Flow or, or, or anything else, we keep you safe. And when we do our drops, every single person is a verified human. Like we, we don't have um, bots that are taking advantage of the situation. We have verified uh, randomization where if there's only 50,000 packs and 100,000 people show up, uh, you know that it's not someone can't outbid you. It's going to be a fair drop. Uh, when you do, when you shop on the marketplace, you can look at every single transaction and every single user is a real user. We don't have wash trading where someone can sell stuff to themselves, uh, raise the price and then try to sell it to a third party. So we put a lot of effort and attention to that, like transparency, safety. And I mean, a related thing is compliance where ham-fisted regulation can uh, cause issues. And you know, the, the lucky thing is NFTs are pretty clearly outside of the scope of any kind of sort of regulatory jurisdiction. And so there's hopefully not going to be too much tamperings to the innovation there. 
You have an investment fund at Dapper Labs. Um, How do you think about the strategy of the bets that you're making and the next gen of businesses that you want to give kind of a a leg up to? Is there any one or two big categories that you're focused on there? Big categories. I mean, it's across the board. Look, like tokens, whether they're fungible or or non-fungible, we just see them as sort of Lego blocks. And we're really interested in the worlds and, and applications people will build around them. I mean, we're looking a lot at DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which is sort of when I alluded to people working outside of corporate structures, DAOs are essentially a piece of software that allows direct democracy and, and sort of voting on really anything that that piece of software governs. And uh, we think there's, there's DAOs have not had their top shot moment yet. And then we have both an internal team as well as a, a heavy effort to support um, external creators and in trying to explore things that really make sense to everybody and where no one has to know what a DAO is, but they can be part of a community and benefit from it and, and sort of add value to it. That's all that really matters. But the investment fund, you know, our perspective is that we believe in teams and that's so early on um, in the space, we want teams that can go sniff out opportunity and, and explore and make mistakes and but learn from their mistakes. And so we tend to try to invest in teams like ourselves, sort of technical first teams that also have, because there's so much technical complexity still, but that also have a creative vision that goes beyond, you know, let's do X for Y, because it's almost any idea you can have now is will be shown as too small uh, one year, three years, five years down the line. So we just invest in people that can scale. And the most exciting thing is they're coming from all over the place. It's not a you know, Stanford, Harvard. I mean, no, no, <laughs> no offense to us at all. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're Stanford and Harvard on this call, but but there's um, but you know, the people it's coming from all over the world and all over the country and and all different kinds of folks that have different takes on what are the problems with the world. The people who went to Harvard, Stanford, work at Google and Facebook maybe are happy with the way the internet functions today, but it's the people trying to break in from the outside or trying to connect with their communities, just being frustrated. It's, Wait a second, they're my Twitter followers. Why do only two to three percent of them see my tweets and I have to pay to reach the rest? You know, it's it's a little bit of a why am I I'm an Instagram creator? Why do I have to so fight so hard to make money on this platform? I'm a YouTube star. I'm bringing my fans to your platform. Why do I uh, make so little money unless I'm one of the top 10 or or whatever it is? Um, they they really get it. That's what gets me super excited about the future is everything you just said there. Ram, first of all, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. I wanted at least four more hours to keep asking you questions. Everybody out there listening, if you want to learn more, please check out dapperlabs.com and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. And we are rooting for you in every single way. And we can't wait to see what the next year looks like. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me.